0: Welcome to the podcast, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Ain. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We chat with authors and storytellers in thought-provoking and intimate interviews, all with a Jewish twist. I'm delighted to welcome Brad Kolodny. Brad is the author of the award-winning book Seeking Sanctuary, 125 Years of Synagogues on Long Island, which was published in 2019. It features more than 350 original photographs and archival images. Brad has photographed more than 600 synagogues in 13 countries over the last 30 plus years, including every synagogue building from Great Neck to Montauk. His new book, The Jews of Long Island, 1705 to 1918, published by State University of New York Press, was released in March. Brad has worked for The New York Times since 1996, is president of the Jewish Historical Society of Long Island, and an active member at Midway Jewish Center in Syosset, New York. So welcome, Brad.
1: Thank you, Meryl. What a wonderful introduction. I think you've covered it all. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay, great. Well, we're really happy to have you here. Uh, why don't we start by you giving us a brief summary um, of, the, of the new book, The Jews of Long Island, uh, for those who haven't read it yet.
1: Sure. Yeah, the, uh, the very quick and easy synopsis is that it is the comprehensive story of how uh, Judaism established itself on Long Island. And, uh, you know, I think most people know about Long Island as a very large Jewish community following World War II. But the fact of the matter is there were many Jews who lived on Long Island even after World War I. But the period that I cover in the book leads up to the end of World War I before there was any significant population growth um, on Long Island. And so this early period... You know, covers the the who, where, and why Jews decided to move to Long Island and how they established their Jewish communities there.
0: Yeah, well, the the book is fascinating, and especially um, well for two reasons. The first reason that you mentioned, because most of us were not were aware of Long Island after World War II as having a lot of Jews, um, but not before. But the the details and and the stories of the people um, and and the community are really um, very eye opening. So what motivated you um, to write a book about the Jews of Long Island? Was it a direct result of your first book that described and displayed your photos of the synagogues on Long Island?
1: It definitely was. Yeah. The first, the first book that I wrote, uh, as you mentioned, Seeking Sanctuary, 125 Years of Synagogues on Long Island, was a project that I started in 2015. And it took me four years to complete, photographing every single synagogue building in Nassau and Suffolk County, both past and present.
0: Now, you're it, a professional
1: it, it... photographer, right? <laughs> I am not, actually. You're I was not? A I am not. I was a photographer in college. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, over the years, I guess I've maintained the uh, sensibility of what makes a good photograph. And uh-huh. I'm so happy to hear that you're surprised.
0: <laughs> I I'm am, by am
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, you know, I, it was a fun project to go out and photograph synagogues and, and bring awareness to, you know, Judaism that exists on Long Island, both currently and formerly. Now, that book came out in 2019 mm-hmm. in June, and I had started to do um, you know, book talks um, for that book going from June of 2019, and it all came to a halt in March of 2020 for obvious reasons because right. of COVID. Now, this work that I've done and these two books that I've written mm-hmm. are not my full-time job. I, I do work for the New York Times, as you mentioned. And, um, once COVID hit, I knew that I wasn't going to be commuting. Um, so I had a lot of extra time on my hands and I wanted to dedicate it to doing something constructive. Mm -hmm. So I started doing research online, which is so convenient that there is so much information available online. I didn't have to leave my house for the most part. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. It's it's unbelievable. Um, As compared to the first book where I actually had to go out and Mm -hmm. photograph synagogue buildings, the the second book, I started doing research in earnest right when COVID started, and it was all about the Jewish people. Um, Mm -hmm. What I found through doing two years worth of research is that there were over 4,000 Jews that lived in Nassau and Suffolk counties before the end of World War I. And to me, it was an astounding number. When I started doing research, I figured I'd find a few hundred maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But by 1918, there were already 13 synagogues on Long Island. So there's this massive amount of information that's available online. And it was just a question of me bringing it all together and putting it together in this volume that you know brings awareness to jewish history on long island which in my opinion has been completely overlooked Uh,
0: absolutely absolutely from for me one of the big takeaways um was that there were Jews living on Long Island, you know, as as early as the 18th century, and they they had various motivations for coming here. Uh, After all, with the modes of transportation, you know, during your time period, um, it was quite a distance from New York City. Would you would you talk about that? Um, a little bit why they, I mean, they didn't just go to NASA, you know, Western Nassau County. They came all the, some of them went all the way out east. Would you talk about um, some of the reasons why they
1: came to Long Island? It was basically built around business and uh, and around making a living. Um, one of the earliest Jews to move out to Long Island was a man named Aaron Isaacs. He was a member of Sheiras Israel. Uh, which is the Spanish and Portuguese Synagogue in New York City?
0: Mm-hmm. He was
1: a member there in 1748. By 1750, he was living in East Hampton.
0: Wow! And for
1: those for those listening that don't realize, East Hampton is the east end of Long Island. You almost can't go much further, except for Amagansett and Montauk. Um, and he
0: was a merchant. Do we know how he? I mean, how did he travel there? What was the mode of transportation at that time? It's been a horse, a horse and wagon.
1: Oh, that must have
0: taken a while to get there.
1: I'm sure it was a, it was a multiple day trip to go Uh. from Manhattan, where you first would have had to board a boat to get onto Long Island, because Long Island is an island. Mm -hmm. And it is 118 miles long from, from uh, New York Harbor to Montauk. So mm-hmm. the trip, if you figure to East Hampton would have been, I don't know, 100 miles, let's say, mm-hmm. um, would have probably taken a couple of days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he was a merchant. He lived in East Hampton starting in 1750. And uh, even, uh, you know, through the Revolutionary War, he lived on Long Island and he um, owned part of a wharf in Sag Harbor. So he would actually go between Connecticut mm-hmm. and Long Island uh, quite often.
0: Wow, so um, you also write about um the other Western Nassau. I mean, you write about the whole island, but I was particularly interested in uh, Cedarhurst, which yeah. uh, is still um a very Jewish area. Um, so d- what were the reasons uh why the original settlers moved there, and and how was the um Long Island Railroad
1: really a game changer there? Well, you, you mentioned it exactly. The Long Island Railroad started, I believe, in the 1830s. Um, but it was originally a, a line that went from Brooklyn to Greenport, and it was meant for shipping goods.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Once, once goods reached Greenport, they would be put on ships to be sent to Boston. It mm-hmm. wasn't until much you know many decades later where it became a uh, railroad that moved people. And the big game changer, as you mentioned... What came in 1910? Because before 1910, if you wanted to go from Long Island to New York City, you would have to take the Long Island Railroad to Long Island City in Queens. You would get off the train, board a ferry, get uh, take the ferry to the east side of Manhattan, 34th Street, and then you would be in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But in 1910, the East River Tunnel opened, and so that gave direct access from Long Island to Penn Station in New York City. Mm -hmm. And this is when everyday commuters began going from Long Island into Manhattan. So you have examples of people from Cedarhurst, from Lawrence, from Woodmere, who, you know, in 1915, 1918, were working in New York City, either in the Garment Center or in the Diamond District or on Wall Street. Um, And they were going back and forth every single day from their homes in the five towns area and in other places. And that's really what led to the growth of Western Nassau Mm. County uh, in the early days.
0: That's, that's really, really uh, fascinating. So I I also want to go now to the, to the North shore, to uh, Western um, Nassau County and um, everybody knows about the gold Coast. Great Neck, Port Washington, Roslyn, et cetera. I mean, we we know about it from uh, years ago from F. Scott Fitzgerald, East Egg and West Egg. And, um, but I don't think people thought about um, it as particularly Jewish back then. Can you tell us uh, about the Guggenheim family and their influence there, which you write about?
1: Yeah, of course, there, there were three Guggenheim brothers mm-hmm who had estates in Sands Point, which is on the Port Washington Peninsula, just north of Port Washington. And they were, they were uh, summering in Port Washington and in Sands Point, Sands Points as early, as early as 1910. Mm. Um, they, they were obviously the, the wealthy industrialist family. Uh, and, but there were others, uh, there were other Jews that lived in the Gold Coast area. Uh, Benjamin Stern of Stern's department store uh, had an estate in uh, Roslyn Harbor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as much as when we think of Jews on Long Island before World War One, you know, we're probably thinking mostly of of peddlers. Um, You know, there were some farmers. There were also uh, some factory workers. But at the other end of the spectrum, you had these wealthy uh, individuals as well who made Long Island their home.
0: Right, now, they, they, the, those areas um, still have a large number of, of Jews, but you write about uh, some other communities which we don't think of as necessarily Jewish today, such as Hempstead, Lindenhurst, and Riverhead. There are other examples, but um, so they had Jews choosing to live there in the time period of your book. I'd like to ask you if you can give us a couple of examples of people who lived in these places and why. And then uh, maybe if you would be so kind enough to speculate about what happened to the Jewish communities there, because they're really are virtually um. It was certainly in Lindenhurst, and Hempstead and Riverhead maybe very small Jewish community nowadays.
1: Yeah, absolutely. there you know, I found just two Jews on Long Island who served or who were involved in the military at the time of the Civil War. One of them, his name was Jacob Seidenberg, and he lived in Hempstead. Mm-hmm. Um, he was living in Hempstead in the 1860s. And again, he was a merchant. Um, in the eighteen seventies, there was a German enclave that was established on the south shore of Suffolk County. You mentioned it as Lindenhurst, but in the day in eighteen seventy, when it was established, it was called Breslau. That was the name of the village. Breslau? It wasn't until Breslau, correct. Like
0: in German, like a German. Okay. That's
1: right. It was <laughs> It was organized by German immigrants
0: right. who
1: came to New York, <clears throat> excuse me, and moved to that area of Suffolk County and established their own German enclave uh, in 1871 called Breslau. Mm. There, were, there were 10 Jews amongst this number of maybe uh, a couple of hundred Germans mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. lived in Breslau. 10 of them were Jewish, and they established the first Jewish congregation on Long Island in 1875. Wow. Um, The third community that you mentioned, Riverhead, also a very early Jewish community. There is still a synagogue in Riverhead, Mm -hmm. uh, Temple Israel. They had uh, also a German Jewish immigrant who settled in Riverhead in 1856. His name was Jonas Mm Fischl. And the Fischl family became uh, somewhat prominent on Long Island in the retail business, they they had retail stores. Uh, Jonas was in Riverhead. He had a brother Andrew who was in Patchog, and they had another brother Leopold who was in Babylon. They were all Jewish German immigrants that came to the United States in the 1850s, even before the Eastern European immigration. Of the 1880s began, so mm-hmm. they, they were part of the of the earlier wave of immigration of Jews starting to come out to Long Island.
0: So, do you think that um, these communities really aren't Jewish anymore because the people moved to uh, you know upward mobility, or or they experienced um, anti-Semitism in these communities?
1: You know, there could there could have been examples of anti-Semitism, but I don't think that's the reason why these uh, these particular communities have a a lesser Jewish population today than they did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a it's a function of, I think, what everybody is experiencing, not just on Long Island, but in the United States, that there are decreasing number of Jews who are affiliating with synagogues. There are still 300,000 Jews on Long Island today, but less are choosing to affiliate with synagogues and therefore you have less members in synagogues. Mm-hmm. They don't have the money to support the infrastructure of the building and the mm-hmm. salaries and whatnot. And so we have a number of mergers and, and uh, you know, buildings and congregations that have been shut down for not just the reason of people not joining synagogues at the same pace that their parents and grandparents joined, but you have people moving away and out of different communities for various reasons, whether they're retiring to Florida or Arizona, or you know, um, you know, just not uh, not joining synagogues. So there is no synagogue in Lindenhurst any longer. Right. There is there is still a synagogue in Riverhead, and there is a synagogue in Hempstead. Oh,
0: there is still the synagogue in Hempstead. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned before that. Um, you have the, the names of of, of uh, four thousand Jews who who lived on Long Island uh, prior to the end of World War One, and you list them. Uh, they're all listed uh, in the book. Uh, was there one person who who stood out to you over all the others?
1: <laughs> it's such a that's such an interesting question and and difficult to answer because every. You know, every individual has a great story. And that was part of the joy of my research and doing this work was finding out these stories about people who came during this period when, you know, it was not the popular thing to do. Um, But if I did have to choose one, uh, there was an individual named Leo Fischl. And I mentioned the Fischl family as German immigrants. Leopold Fischl was in Babylon by the 1870s, and he had his fourth child named Leo. Um, Leo was born in 1877. And what fascinates me about Leo is he was a baseball player. Um, really? I'm a big baseball fan. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I'm a big baseball fan. And I was floored to learn that Leo Fischl from Babylon was the first Jewish pitcher in the history of Major League Baseball. And that occurred in 1899. Leo uh, was a baseball player growing up in Babylon. In 1895, he went to Columbia University and he was the star pitcher of the team. In the spring of his senior year, the New York Giants needed a fill-in pitcher for a game on May 3rd and they went to Columbia And they took Leo Fischel from Columbia for the day. He pitched and he pitched Uh at the polo grounds against the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, He pitched a really, a really good game. The the Giants did not win that day, but um, there was all kinds of speculation uh, after the game that the New York Giants were going to sign Leo Fischel to a contract and he would become a member of the New York Giants. But what happened? He decided instead to become a lawyer.
0: A uh, nice Jewish uh, profession right. for a nice Jewish boy, right? At That's that right. Time. That's
1: right. So he pitched one game in the major leagues, and that gave him the distinction of being the first Jewish pitcher in the history of major leagues. Well, League. I'm sure his
0: parents were very happy that he became a lawyer.
1: For sure. You know, part of the research that I did was getting in touch with descendants of some of the people that lived on Long Island in this early period. And I have been in touch with Leo Fischel's grandson. And wow. he shared with me some personal family effects. They have a, uh, you know, a journal and uh, a lot of um, uh, like contracts and photographs and things that they shared. And uh, his parents may have had an influence on him making the decision not to play baseball and to become a lawyer.
0: Uh they might have. <laughs> they might they very you they they
1: very I would well say that they probably did. They um, probably I,
0: did. I, I would think so. And <laughs> is there one um community that that really grabbed you?
1: Interesting. A community that grab you know, I guess I would say Freeport. And the really? reason I say Freeport is because they do also still have a synagogue today, but it's but it has very uh, small membership. Uh-huh. And You know, I live in Plainview, so that's sort of like in the mid to north shore of Long Island. I hadn't spent a lot of time in Freeport before I started, you know, doing this research. And Freeport was an amazingly large Jewish community in the 1900s, 1910, 1920. When I say incredibly large, incredibly large for the period. And that was really defined by
0: (laughs) the, uh, the
1: main retail shopping area, for anyone that knows Freeport, South Main Street between Sunrise Highway and Merrick Road at that time was the central business hub. And about 25% of the businesses that operated at that time were Jewish-owned businesses. And so the Freeport Historical Society has done an amazing job of um, you know keeping the records of these businesses. And I've Found advertisements in newspapers uh, about these businesses. So Freeport, to me, was an astounding community that just shocked me that there was such a large Jewish population. I mean, that's there.
0: amazing. Twenty five percent. You know, when you yes. think of the percentage of Jews, I mean, that right. that's just amazing. Um, so, I, I, this is a question I have to ask you. So, your book covers a period of 215 years. Brad, why did you decide to stop at 1918?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, the first book that I wrote was completely comprehensive about every single synagogue on Long Island, past and present. There are a lot of books out there um, about, you know, synagogues of a particular state or a particular city or community where you know they take maybe 15 or 20 synagogues and highlight them because they're the largest or the most beautiful or what have you the oldest um for me i wanted to tell the complete story of judaism on long island and through the first book i did that through the eyes of the synagogue buildings in this book um you know as i mentioned earlier there are 300,000 jews on long island today it would be impossible to tell a fully comprehensive story about 300,000 people. But by, but by cutting it off at the end of World War I, when, when there were uh, you know, approximately 4,000 people, well, you know, then you can actually do something. And I think you mentioned it already, but the names of every single person that I found through looking in census records, um, newspaper articles, synagogue incorporation papers, lots and lots of different sources, Um, I have identified these people and mentioned them by name in the book. So there are 17 chapters geographically focused. So at the end of the Glen Cove chapter or the Freeport chapter or the Huntington chapter, you have a list of the names of the people who lived in that area before the end of World War I with whatever little information I could find if they were a member of the synagogue if they had a certain profession when they were born, when they passed away. Um, And I see, I see you
0: had some Ains there in Glen Cove, which are That's right. Are Are they descendants of
1: of your husband? Stuart, yeah. They're they're ancestors of of your husband. That's fantastic. Right, exactly. We'll Mm -hmm. we'll have, we'll have to talk more about that offline.
0: (laughs) Um, So, I know what I want the answer to be to this question,
1: but will there be a sequel, Brad? (laughs) You know, I'm not planning on one at this time, Uh -uh. but then again, then again, I did not plan on writing this book about people either, but I will say that there is something else that has been taking up my time since the book, you know, since I was working on the book and also since it's been published is that I have established the Jewish Historical Society of Long Island. And we are doing a lot of great work um, to bring awareness to Jewish history on Long Island. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is Long Island today is the fourth largest Jewish community in the United States after New York City, Los Angeles, and Southern Florida. Long Island. I, is I, that's four.
0: amazing. I, I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and
1: I think Long Island gets overlooked because it's just as an outgrowth of New York City.
0: Exactly.
1: So so the history of Judaism on Long Island has been completely overlooked until now. With the two books that I've put out and the establishment of the Jewish Historical Society of Long Island, we're bringing recognition to Jewish history on Long Island through erecting historic markers like we did at the first synagogue built in 1896 in Setauket. We are establishing a museum that will hopefully be getting underway in September of 2022. Um, We have gathered artifacts from from all the people that I've spoken to and the work that I've done. Not only have family members shared their stories about their ancestors, but they've also given me artifacts, documents, photographs that they have of their family history that they don't know what to do with. So being able to gather it all together in one place and make it something that is um educational and inspiring to people if we can get that done and that's part of our mission then it'll be a great thing to accomplish and uh you know that's that's some of our short term and and long term goals for the Jewish historical society and that's really what's been uh you know my main focus um mm-hmm. you know where, where will
0: the museum be located
1: So I would rather not say right now because it's not not 100% confirmed, but Mm -hmm. we're looking at opening in September. And what I will say is that for those that are interested in hearing more about that and learning more about Jewish history on Long Island, you can go on our website, which is jhsli.org, which stands for Jewish Historical Society of Long Island. And you can sign up to be on our email list. We will certainly be sending out uh, updates, particularly regarding the museum, its location, and uh, you know all details about everything Jewish on Long Island.
0: Great. Um, so oh, I think we're we're coming to the close of our time now. Who, who when you wrote the book, who did you think? Um, would be the audience for this book and um, who is the audience that you're finding and what's been the
1: reaction? It's a good question. I didn't write the book with an audience in mind. Um, I wrote the book to document Jewish history on Long Island. Mm -hmm. Um, Once the book has come out and working with SUNY Press, you know, that's obviously something that they want to know. Who's your target? Because they want to sell copies of the book, of course. Mm -hmm. And so I've been giving many presentations at synagogues, at historical societies here on Long Island, um, talking about going as far as uh, as Florida to give a presentation. But um, yeah, you know, it, it's it's actually uh, seems to be a bit of an older uh, audience—people who are interested in history and people who have a connection to Long Island Judaism—and that doesn't have to be people. Who are living on Long Island currently? It can be people who grew up on Long Island, you know, have since moved away for whatever reason, but still have a connection and a feel for Judaism on Long Island. And uh, and those are the people that we want to reach. We hope will, uh, you know, become uh, involved with the Jewish Historical Society and you know would be interested in reading the books that I've written. Okay,
0: um, our time is up. Is there anything you would like to add, Brad?
1: You know, I think I've I've dropped in all the necessary uh, information that I have. Um, I just so appreciate you uh, having me on today, and you know, it's great to talk to you. And we are going to have to talk about the Ains from Glen <laughs> because For I sure. I didn't realize there was a connection there, although the name is fairly uncommon, right? And um,
0: and nobody believes it's a Jewish name. They think it was changed from something. And it was not, according to Stewart anyway.
1: Interesting. interesting. Well, we'll, so, talk, we'll talk more for sure.
0: OK, great. So uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Brad Kolodny. The book is The Jews of Long Island, 1705 to 1918. I also want to thank our executive producer, Pam Stack. People of the Book is a copyrighted presentation of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Please visit us and like our Facebook page, People of the Book. I'm your host, Meryl Aine. For more information about my books and writing, visit me at merylain.com. Until next time, please join us on Facebook at Jews Love to Read and read a good book.